0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Heart of amends, I think, is about accepting the consequences for your actions. That's something that people have a really hard time, even conceptually, Well, I said I'm sorry, so it's fixed. Well, the other person is not unharmed. So the fact that you are trying to fix it is wonderful and does not erase what happened.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash That's patreo dot com Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg. She is an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She was named by Newsweek as a rabbi to watch and a faith leader to watch by the Center for American Progress the author of seven books she has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Time, and other publications. Today, we're talking about her excellent recent book On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I am fascinated by this book. And in the first part of our conversation, I like to do what I call Setting the table, which sort of orients our listeners to what we're going to be talking about. And so, from the title of your book, Repentance and Repair, it sounds as if this could be uh, a book about emotional mechanics or car mechanics. So, I want to begin to talk about the framework in which you're doing this. I've mentioned at several points, introducing you that you are a rabbi, you are part of the Jewish tradition. And one of the major frameworks that you bring in to begin to talk about repentance and repair is a 12th century rabbi by the name of Moses Maimonides. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Maimonides as a way of starting the conversation for us.
1: So Maimonides was indeed 12th century rabbi. He was a Torah scholar was a philosopher. He was a physician to the Sultan Saladin in Egypt. He was a workaholic. He was possibly history's most confident man, or he's up there. It was a lot of things. And one of the things that he did that for which he was so, so famous was take a lot of the rabbinic thinking that existed prior to him. And rearrange it in a new way so that you didn't have to be a Talmud scholar who could follow the complex, winding arguments of the fifth century Talmud, but rather just know, you just didn't even know what to do and how to do it, right? I, I, until what time can I pray the obligatory prayers if my Dairy spoon falls into the meat pot. What do I do? Is it still kosher? Right? The, the nitty gritty, just tell me what to do. I don't want to know why. Just what? And it was scandalous at the time. And it was, I mean, there were book burnings of the Mishnah Torah when it first came out. It was a whole thing. And now it is accepted as one of our most sacred texts. And one of the great revolutions in this profoundly brilliant book was Hilchot Chuva, the Laws of Repentance. What we translate as repentance, chuva actually means returning, coming back. It's not feel bad, bad monkey. It's a whole series of actions that we'll get into. And this is really the basis of the Jewish approach to taking responsibility for is his
0: work. There's so much there that I want to unpack, and thank you for that capacious answer. So you've begun to introduce some terms that I want to make sure our listeners are familiar with. So you mention Torah and you mentioned Talmud. Maybe you could give us a quick distinction between those two terms. When we're using them, what do they reference and how are they distinct from one another?
1: Okay, so Torah is the five books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also part of Christian sacred text, and the Pentateuch, whatever. And also Jews, when we talk about our sacred teachings, we talk about them as Torah more broadly. So we say Torah texts could be anything over a 2,000 year span in some ways. And the Talmud is... so. The Torah says, for example, keep Shabbat. And the Jews say, well, okay, what does that mean? What do you do? What do you not do? We need to take this seriously. This is our sacred path for living in tune with the holy. It matters. And so over time emerged rabbinic traditions around, well, okay, here are the 39 categories of things you don't do on Shabbat. Like you don't reap, you don't plow, you don't bake, you don't write, you don't, okay, great. That's called the mission of. And then in around 200 to 500 in what's now Iraq, there was then the rabbis going, okay, well, you don't plow on Shabbat, but if so, if I'm trying to get a bench from over here to over there and it's really heavy and I have to drag it and it makes a furrow in the ground, have I violated the Sabbath? And its it seems like a silly question, like have I, but it becomes, people are trying to figure out how to live the minutiae of their day-to-day. And we want to be living in tune with the sacred and in line and have our lives be something of a portable monastery, if you will. And so the Talmud is about, in some ways, Coming up with these edge cases, so that if you know what's, what to do in the extreme case, you know how to do the little things in every day to work out what it means to be in the walking in the stream. And so that's the the Talmud is the bedrock of Jewish law and Jewish life,
0: really. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg. She's an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Today we're talking about her recent book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. So I want to make sure that I have this right. So the, the way in which Moses Maimonides is approaching this really huge bedrock of Jewish law that you've just said, the Talmud and we're talking about the Babylonian Talmud, which was codified in Iraq somewhere between the 4th and 5th centuries, he goes and he creates, a, I'm going to say, a kind of a simplification, a kind of distillation of Talmudic ideas, and he creates this writing called the Mishneh Torah. Now, in that process, first of all, I want to make sure that I've characterized it correctly, and if I have, what he's not saying is that something like rabbis are unnecessary, to the process. He's not trying to say, now you have a book, you no longer need someone to help you navigate these bedrock issues. What is he saying with the Mishnah Torah?
1: So if you open the Talmud, you will, as you picture the study house, you've got the two scholars up in front trying to work out a situation. And one says, if you drag the bench but you didn't mean to be plowing, it's fine, right? You didn't plow, right? You're just, you're dragging, it's not, you didn't break Shabbat, there's no problem. And the other one says, no, even if you didn't mean to, there's a furrow and here's my proof text. And then the other one will say, your proof text does not make any sense and I'm gonna bring another proof text to smite your proof text. And they will go back and forth and there's an intern in the back, furiously scribbling, right? And then you take those notes and you compile with another conversation that happened 50 years later and another conversation that happened 100 years earlier. And some editor has pulled these all of these things together. And s- scholars are trying to piece all of this. Of the 5,000 disagreements in the Talmud, only 50 are resolved decisively on the page. Okay? Okay. So there's always room for scholars to be getting deep into these winding discussions, right? We always need scholars, but for regular everyday folks, my Moses was like, Moses, sorry, for regular everyday folks, Maimonides was like, so people just need to know if you, if it's okay to drag the bench or not. And you just want to open up and say on Shabbat, if you need to drag a bench, here's what to do. Right. And, and just tell us what to do. And that, most people, if you don't have the time or the luxury to be following the whole discussion and trying to figure out when you you have to go to work as a laborer in 20 minutes or or whatever, you just need the information. And so he was trying to, he's public education, right? He was trying to make the knowledge more accessible to more people. And I... As someone who really values public education, I really love that, honestly.
0: And so as you were thinking about the structure of this book on repentance and repair, it sounds as if Moses Maimonides was the perfect prism through which to look at this question of not only forgiveness, but atonement, repentance, all of these things get distilled in this work of Maimonides in a way that you found useful and pragmatically actionable. Now, when I say it that way, have I got it basically correct or would you say it in a different way?
1: Yeah, I mean, so what he did since he, he took, you know, this piece from this chunk of Talmud over here and this piece from this other tractate and this from over here and better and he rearranged it. So it's to in one sense he he distilled and rearranged in ways that are useful. And it, it was every interpretation is a creative choice. His own flourishes are in there. And most of the time I really agree with and value his choices. We have there's one place where I will throw down and strongly disagree, but it, it to when I read his laws of repentance closely, I see five steps of repentance that he articulates. And those five steps, when you cause harm, and I say when, because we are all victims of harm, we are all bystanders to harm, and we are all harm doers, every single one of us. So when you cause harm, here are the five steps that as I read Maimonides, these are the things you have to do in order to take responsibility for the harm that you caused, begin to do the work so that you don't continue moving through the world as a harm doer and do the work to repair insofar as it is possible the harm that you caused to another person or people or community. And the longer I have worked with this five-step model, the more I am convinced that it really is a profound, extraordinary pathway to not just healing our interpersonal relationships, and that's how it's usually used in the Jewish community, but that it really works for addressing harm in the public sphere, in institutions, on the national level, and beyond. So that's why he's my guy. Yeah.
0: And we'll build into that in in the conversation that is to come. Just briefly, as we're moving towards our first break, if you could succinctly give us those five steps of repentance that you just mentioned so that we can be moving into the conversation with the listeners, having them fresh in mind, what are they?
1: Uh, Number one, confession. Own the harm that you caused fully. Number two, start to change. What do you need to do in order to not be that person anymore? Uh, Step three, amends. Step four, apology. Note, it's all the way down at step four. And then step five, when you have the opportunity to do the thing again, and there's always the opportunity, you make a different choice.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg. She is an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's the author of seven books and has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Time, and other publications. Today we're talking about her recent book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg. She's an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's the author of seven books and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book on Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Well, I think my listeners will have had the experience either as a child or interacting with a child when something has gone awry in the social space and harm has been done and the insistence that the child make amends. And we can also think about this in an adult context where the child basically says, I'm sorry. And there's no heart in it. There's no actual sense of the wrong that has been done. The child is going through the motions in a performative way to try and get out of that situation as quickly as possible and get back to whatever was amusing to the child in the first place. In that dynamic, that moment that I've just illustrated with this child, I see a lot of what you're initially getting at in your book on Repentance and Repair that these five steps that we talked about from Moses Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah that help us to, to think about a Jewish form of repentance, confession, starting to change, making amends, finally making an apology, and then when you have the chance to do the same action again, choosing differently, that takes either our child or our adult much deeper into the process. And so let's begin there. And as you were laying out the pieces in your book, It was clear that you started with the individual and with individual harm. So talk us through that process and how these five steps of Maimonides can help us to think about going deeper and creating greater repair in our interpersonal relationships.
1: So the first thing that we have to keep in mind, at least for me, as I read Maimonides, this work is, must be, always victim-centric, right? If we're not focusing, if we're trying to talk about cleaning up harm and we're not keeping our focus on the person or people who were hurt, then something's awry. And the mumbling, I'm sorry, and trying to get out of it as quickly as possible, right, It's not about, are you actually okay? What do you need? Which, by the way, Something you can teach your kids. Are you okay? What do you need? What do you want? And then you, oh, I'm sorry that I named specific thing, right? Here's what I'm gonna do that so that it will teach your kid that. Ask me how I know. But when you start with the articulation of harm confession, right? I did this thing. First of all, you have to know what you've done. Mumbling, I'm sorry, doesn't necessarily guarantee that you know what you are sorry for. You have to cross that bridge from that place where you think of yourself as the good guy, as the hero, who's always doing their best, trying their best, always helping. You have to remember that sometimes you're not the hero of somebody else's story, and that's hard. And confession forces us to confront that and to name it out loud. Today, I wasn't the hero. Today, one of my favorite confessions is Dan Harmon was a showrunner for Community, and he is sexually harassed one of his writers, and he considered himself a feminist, but he said out loud, I, I could not have done this thing if I truly respected women, right? Here are the things that I told myself in order to justify what I was doing, right? And yet, it wasn't okay, right? We have to. It doesn't matter what we intended. Right? If I'm not paying attention on my phone, and I step on your foot. Is still broken. I don't. What I meant doesn't matter. Your, I step on your foot because I was not paying attention because my focus was elsewhere. And so we first have to own the harm. and, And for victims, that can be really profoundly healing. If, depending on the nature of the harm, it can be an end to gaslighting. It can be finally that moment when other people who may be disbelieving the victim suddenly say, oh, okay, actually, yes, now I see. This thing actually is a big deal. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to me, finally. Right? So confession is critically important in beginning this process. And then you have to start to change. Because if you don't do the work, you're going to keep doing the thing. You will continue being a harm doer. Do you need therapy? Do you need to call your sponsor? Do you need rehab? Do you need to let go of some friends who do not inspire your greatest behavior? Do you need to do some education work do you need to start learning about anti-racism do you need to learn about trans liberation right? what are the things you need to do in order to grow into the kind of person that you would like to be and that doesn't do this harmful thing so you've just and, and this may be a limited process it may be something that takes your whole life depends on what the thing is right What's starting to change? And then once you've started to move a little bit, then we can go into what's amends? What does that harm party need? And we're not presuming that the victim is sitting by the side of the road bleeding this whole time, right? We're presuming that we're not living in this highly individualized world where. I'm looking out for me and you're looking out for you and there's nobody else around. Somebody else is taking care of this person and making sure they get what they need. But if the harm doer hasn't begun doing the work, they're not safe to show up to the victim and say, what do you need? We need them to actually be doing something until they've been doing the work. And so then they can, once they're a little bit further along their process, they can show up and say, hi, what would not undo what has been done because we cannot unharm what has been harmed. But what would make this feel more right, more just, more whole? What could stitch up this hole in the universe that I have caused, right? And it might involve money. It might involve money directly to the harmed party. It might involve charitable donations. It might involve time, volunteerism. It might involve using your platform to speak out against the kinds of harm that you caused. It it might involve any number of things, uh, either directly to the harm party towards creating a more whole world. But if you assume you know what appropriate amends are, you're continuing to treat the victim as an object. You're assuming that you know better than they do what they need. And often the answer might surprise you.
0: This was one of the most profound aspects of the early part of your book on repentance and repair for me, because as you said just a moment ago, keeping the center on the victim, that's different from the way in which I think a lot of people, and I'm saying this as a person who is identified as white and male and presents as heterosexual in most contexts. And so the expectation is that I will never give up my power and my ability to control the outcome of situations. And what was profound for me is that this kind of model that you're talking about is the expectation that I or anyone who has done harm would decenter my power and instead give that power over to the victim and say, now what do you need, even and including if that means that I should be stepping out of the public space, I should be silencing my voice. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how. That shift, it's a radical shift and, a, and an essential one, but it's one that I think is, is very alien to particularly American culture. I wonder if you could speak to that.
1: It is a radical shift. We are so used to assuming that the game is to try to get as much as we can All the time, because if we give up anything, then we are lost and we are going to be kicked down to the bottom of the ladder. And then we have to start all over as opposed to a more communitarian model where, as my grandfather used to say, it's all one pocket, right, where I'm going to give you some because you need it. And at some point, somebody will give back to me because I need it that day. And Right. We've got to all share and make sure there's enough to go around. Right. And part of amends, I think, is about accepting the consequences for your actions. That's something that people had a really hard time, even conceptually. Right? Well, I said I'm sorry. So it's fixed. The, well, the other person is not unharmed. So. The fact that you are trying to fix it is wonderful and does not erase what happened. So you can do wonderful, amazing repair work and still not be welcome at game night ever again. You can do fabulous repair work and have lost that job opportunity. You can do really tremendous, powerful Inner work and be attending to the victim's needs, and there may still be legal consequences to your actions. Right. And trying to fudge that or get around it or think that you are magically exempt from it because you are doing the sincere work isn't how that works. And in my experience, the people who are most sincere about doing the work and least entitled and least expect that they should, of course, be welcome back in every space that they would like are the ones that victims tend to say, actually, this one, he's okay. They can come back or she or they or whoever, right? This person, okay, if they were there because they've been doing work.
0: One of the most profound examples of that for me, in as you were going through the chapter looking at individual repentance, was a late-night phone call where someone who had gotten into 12-step work, and for listeners unfamiliar with 12-step work, as you're working the steps, one of the steps is a searching and fearless moral inventory, and then the requirement that you begin to make amends for those that you have harmed. So. At one o'clock in the morning, he's calling up a woman that he has assaulted, and he's saying, I'm sorry. And as you analyze that, you say, the apology, even the attempt to make amends, was still all about him. He was not in any way thinking about the consequences of trying to make this apology. He literally forced his apology on this person. And I think that's the kind of dynamic of control that we're illustrating here because we can make our apologies performative and we can expect that the other person become a character actor in our repentance arc. Now, when I say this, am I overplaying the hand? Would you say it in a different way or do I have it
1: basically right? I think you have it absolutely right. There are so many ways that people's repentance attempts— Re inscribe the original harm. That they treat the other person as the object to be that is meant to forgive them. You know, in this case that you're describing, there was no curiosity about how the person that I traumatized in serious ways might experience my calling them up out of the blue at 1 a.m., possibly waking them with no advanced warning and throwing them this these words, right? No consciousness. There was no curiosity about whether or not they would want to hear from me. There was no interest in in their experience. And that's what enabled the assault in the first place. Right. That it was all about the perpetrators needs and desires getting fulfilled and zero curiosity about what was happening with this woman. And so that's why I cannot shout it from the rooftops enough, centering the victim and making sure that their needs and their interests are centered every step of the process cannot be more paramount. And is so often left out of the equation.
0: So if if I can frame this, and longtime listeners will know that I've I've come to this place several times before. But if I'm listening to your account of yourself, and then I say to you, Oh no, no, you didn't actually experience that. Instead, you experienced this. So we can talk about a child who has witnessed domestic violence and they go out and they try and tell another adult, and the other adult says, oh, that's not possible. Your mother and father are are so much in love, you must have mistaken what you saw. There's a real loss of agency in that moment when the story is overwritten and someone re-narrates someone's experience. As I'm listening to your analysis of repentance and repair that you're talking about both in this conversation and also in your book, It seems to me like the ability for someone to be able to speak their own story and have it be heard and to have that hearing be impactful is really paramount to this entire process. Have I got that right?
1: It's essential. How can there be repair if no one is attending to the harm and the harm? There there cannot be. And we as a society love to play the song and dance around the the band-aids and the everything sort of papering over. Oh, the harm doer through had a no tap thing on Instagram. But we're not looking at the harm. We're not looking at where the damage lies. And so nothing and no one is truly fixed. But we love the absolution because what it does, if we get to the quick fix without actually attending to the harm. It's a way of saying we can go back to the status quo. Nothing needs to change, right? We don't really need to do any real work here. All of that deep change to make sure it doesn't happen again doesn't have to happen. And the person who was hurt or the people or community just continue traumatized by the side of the road, if you will.
0: One of the most crystalline examples of this for me in your book on Repentance and Repair, you talk about uh, a a kind of gala for a school, and the head of the school gets up and says, listen, in the past, one of our staff abused some of our children, and we are so deeply sorry, and we have begun the hard work of making amends and changing, and there's this this effusive public apology. But you go on to say— in that moment, none of the victims were in the room. So it was a performance for who, certainly not for those who had been harmed. And so we can sometimes see very public, very elaborate gestures of recalcitrance and and sorrow that do not actually, once again, center the victim.
1: Right. And in that scenario, I spoke to the rabbi who had given the speech, and— He was very sincere. He had very earnestly tried to take responsibility for the harm that the school had caused. And this is a man who definitely knows his Maimonides. I will tell you that. And even so, listen, I'm reading Maimonides as a 21st century feminist. So for me, it's like trauma-informed, victim-centered. That is what I am bringing to the text. Maimonides does not use that language, needless to say. And even so, even somebody who who knows this, you know, and and he was using the tra- tra- de- he was using the traditional language of Maimonides and confession when he talked to me about this speech. He, he knew what he was doing, and it was only when I went to speak to one of the victims in this case. That I got another perspective, right? He, the victim said we were not invited. Who was he talking to? Not us. The school did not apologize to us via email in the speech at any point. It, it's so tempting, even when you people might mean the best. It's the temptation to cut victims out of the process is so strong.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg. She's an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's the author of seven books and has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and numerous other publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg. She's an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's the author of seven books and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and numerous other publications. Today we're talking about her recent book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. So we've been talking about centering the victim in an interpersonal exchange Of repair and repentance. But one of the things that I really thought was artful in your book is that you don't just keep it at the interpersonal, but you also begin to expand to the institutional and even to the national. (laughs) And so I'd like to get into that, but one of the ways that I want to get into that is to maybe ask this question. There are times when a person who is very learned in the requirements of apology, repentance, repair, making amends, can use the structures as a way of almost hiding or slipping through the process to try and force the victim to perform some kind of action. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Oh, um, yes. That's a, a very, very popular route. Particularly, when one has power that one does not want to get rid of. because if I have caused harm and I have power over you, and needless to say, not all harm is by those with more power to those with less power, right We're messy, and the harm happens across all lines of power and difference, but many times there are abuses of power, whether that's across lines in terms of of work status or racial status or gender or various intersections, all sorts of things. The temptation is so strong to just hold on to that power, in which case doing a formulaic, right? I said, I'm sorry, right? I'm doing the thing. I'm bringing the people. Now you can forgive me. It's there. And any attempt to pressure victims to forgive you can look around and just do a 360 do a little power analysis somebody is trying to keep systems and structures exactly the way they are and to not change anything or to not risk anything and that that opens up the whole question about repentance on the systemic level right because if an institution causes harm or a nation, the path, the same path works, right? About, let's say an organization is burying HR complaints. You own the harm. confession, right? You own fully the harm that you caused. You have to do things to make it impossible to continue causing that same harm. Are you redoing your hr systems so that this isn't happening again if you if your confession if you're an institution that is grappling with the legacy of enslavement your university was built with enslaved labor well okay what are you going to do so that you are not replicating white supremacy in all of your systems and structures again Ooh that's really hard that's going to open up all sorts of questions about power but even burying the hr complaint does because if your employee comes and says your donor your big donor who gives us gives us a lot of money uh, sexually abused me sexually harassed me whatever then we have to deal with this instead of pretending it didn't happen and that is going to have significant Im- implications for our fundraising for our board for our donor class like that's about that's challenging to power so doing this work taking seriously not doing the same thing again and again amends which if we're talking about hr are we talking about flex time are we talking about paying for therapy are we talking about letting somebody work from home when things are tricky are we talking about actually, you, you know, you do have access to the report. Are we talking about letting you dictate the terms of the investigation? Are we talking about, like, what are the things that are going to feel just in this situation? And then then the apology, which, by the way, we haven't named, I want to name explicitly the apology is so late. Because if you do it right at the beginning, you're basically still the harm doer. And if the apology is happening all the way deep into this process, you're a different person. You, the individual, you, the institution, you, the nation. It is coming from a different and more transformed place. And it becomes much easier not to do the thing already again after all this work. But the larger the body that is doing the repentance work, The larger the questions about power and the greater the will must be to do real work of change on the individual or collective level.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, whether we're talking about an individual, an institution or a nation, when this process is working the way that Maimonides said it should, when it's working the way that you in your book on repentance and repair say it should, the, the behavior cannot look the same at the other end of the process. If I have caused harm, I have to go to the person I have harmed and do the hard work not only of listening and sitting with that discomfort, but beginning to think about the things that have led me to that point that made it possible, that allowed me, that made it easy for me to create that harm. And I need to begin to actively, as you said, start undoing those structures. So change my relationships with other people, change my relationships with money, change my relationships with casual access to violence. And when we're doing this, that means that things can't look the same at the other end we are dealing with institutions that are committed to always looking the same at the other end so there's a real there's a real tension here and how can we begin to have these not only be deployed in our religious settings how can we begin to have this process actually move to fruition in larger spheres like institutions states nations
1: there has to be collective will i, I you know it's the only way it can and will ever work. and i think it's possible i've seen it happen on the institutional level things are moving a one thinks about the slow and fast changes that have happened since 2017 with me too and the ways in which institutions have shifted their response to complaints about misconduct and at least in my tiny little corner of the universe we're not where we need to be yet but the degree to which there is responsiveness that people are believed that investigations are being opened that reports are being shared transparently and publicly is like nothing i could have anticipated five six seven years ago at all. And it gives me hope. And the reason this is happening is because enough people have begun to demand it. And there is pressure. The institutions that I know that are doing the right thing are mostly doing it because they have to. Some are doing it because they want to lead and they believe in the future of their organization, movement, et cetera. And they want to be leading morally and some are doing it because there has been a lot of noise and they take some steps and then there are a group of people pushing and saying those are not enough steps we would like you to do more right and that's so often how change happens it is in germany the process of reckoning with the holocaust people love to hold up germany i will note that it is Really, national reckoning is so much, more, so much easier when the people to whom you are trying to apologize are either dead or no longer in your country. It's a very different conversation than South Africa or trying to deal with systemic racism and land theft and genocide here. But even Germany is messy and nonlinear and complicated. And they did a lot of things out of order and everything that didn't Work perfectly, I think, happened because of how messy and non-linear it was. But everything that happened because of grassroots movements pushing. Right. People starting to say, well, look, I'm going to make a tour of our town and create memorials of all of the places that Nazis killed people. It, it was not welcome. My those in power. <laughs> We're going to do it. And eventually those people grew up and became people in power, right? Civil rights was a grassroots movement that then changed laws, right? That's how things happen. Black Lives Matter changed things. It's changed the national conversation. We're not where we need to be yet, but things happen because of mass movements and that shifts power.
0: This is one of the things that delighted me so much about your book on repentance and repair. It is simultaneously aspirational and actionable. Because at every one of these levels, as you move us chapter to chapter, widening the vista of what you're looking at in terms of repentance and repair, moving from the individual through the institutional to the national, you are showing at each point concrete examples of where it goes horribly wrong, but also concrete examples of where, even on a national level, it has gone well and it has worked. So what I loved about this is how Deeply hopeful, this book is. This is not something that is a a utopian vision that we hope would come someday, but rather it's already been happening. It hasn't been happening as much as we would wish, but there are concrete examples again and again of success for this model of repentance and repair. And so I, I wonder, as you were writing the book, and particularly as the book has now been out in the world, how have readers been embracing this and implementing it into new concrete situations?
1: I have been so honored and overwhelmed by the response, honestly. I get emails hearing that people are speaking to family members they haven't been in touch with for decades, and healing those kinds of rifts. There are programs aimed at preventing sexual violence among youths that are using the book, evidently the state of the Washington state. Public policy program has, used, has started to use the book as part of its core curriculum, which means that people who are entering the bureaucracy in the state of Washington, generally, as was framed to me in this email that came to me, uh, are going to be using this model as they start to think about policy for the state. blows my mind. It's exciting. Is there are possibilities here, right? This can actually bring change. And I hope it will.
0: Well, and the place where it, it became the most tangible for me was the chapter that you had on rethinking, and this goes by a number, like the prison industrial complex, the carceral state, basically the idea that there are some people who belong in cages and that there, there are some people who deserve to be punished as a result of the wrong that they have done. And I wonder if you could take a moment or two and talk to my listeners particularly about that chapter. because it challenged me and it made me rethink some things and I'm still sitting with it. But I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about the thought process going on in that chapter.
1: So the overarching question that animated that chapter was, how do we think about consequences for him? And what's the goal? And when one looks deeply at the American prison system. One learns that there is nothing, well, besides the vast injustices contained where they're in, the cash bail system is functionally a way to incarcerate people for being poor. Don't have the ability to post bail and then their probability of being convicted goes way up just by virtue of being stuck in jail because they didn't have enough money to get out after being arrested before they were proven guilty, right? And, and rates of who's arrested and who is stuck on cash bail, and all of this is deeply racist. I don't know how else to put it, right? <laughs> um, people of color are, are are trapped in these systems disproportionately. Who is uh, disciplined in school? And then who is most more likely to be trapped in the juvenile system and then move on is all deeply racist and not related necessarily to who is causing who's doing crime. Okay. So with that as the baseline, right, knowing that the justice system is not fair, even so, there is nothing in the system that, number one, facilitates the penitent person from doing any of the work of repentance. They are discouraged from owning the harm that they caused, right? They're encouraged to plea out and say yes to a different crime than the one that they maybe had caused, or they're encouraged to plead not guilty, even if they were guilty, right? They're not encouraged to own the harm that they caused. They're definitely not given any opportunities to have a true moral reckoning with what they did. They're told not to have contact with the victim. So any kind of amends or apology or anything like that is absolutely uh, absent. And because the drivers of violence are all Present in the prison system, isolation, for example, and that sort of thing, people leave the system harmed. And so, even if one has caused harm, they are then harmed by the consequence. It is not a just consequence. So, there's that. But more critically, if we want to call this a victim centric process, victims aren't cared for in the system, they statistically wind up more traumatized going through the justice system than if they don't, they wind up not getting their needs met, they don't get that apology, right, they don't get their amends, they don't tend to find their trauma symptoms lessened with a conviction, Whereas victims who go through a restorative justice process or a transformative justice process or others tend to statistically experience a lessening of their trauma symptoms because that they have had an opportunity to receive that apology and that amends. And their harm doer has they found out, why me? Why did you attack me? Right. And they've had the the chance to engage all of those questions and they get to know at the end of it, if there's a real repentance process, they get to walk away feeling uh, secure in the idea that the harm doer isn't going to do that to anybody else. And that is the number one wish of many, if not all, victims of violent crime.
0: And again, for listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about this, that particular chapter has concrete examples of this kind of transformative and restorative justice in process, and so all of this is is available for you. Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, I, I have to say, I have been a fan of yours from a distance for a long time. I have wanted to have you on the show for a while now. It is such a joy to speak with you. This book was so importantly, profoundly moving for me. I learned so much from it. I cannot wait to continue to dive into it and to share it with my students, to share it with other people, because it's a powerful and very actionable book. And I'm so glad you took the time to write it. But thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it today with me and my listeners.
1: I am so honored. Thank you so much for for letting me come play.
0: We've been speaking today with Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg. She's an, uh, an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence for the National Council of Jewish Women. She was named by Newsweek as a rabbi to watch and a faith leader to watch by the Center for American Progress. She is the author of seven books and has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and many other publications. Today we've been talking about her recent book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.